Hi guys, thanks for listening to the Katie Halper Show. Remember to please rate and review us on iTunes and spread the word about the show. This episode is from our live monthly taping, which we do at the Brooklyn Commons the second Wednesday of the month. And this one is followed by a very great karaoke party, which we didn't record, but you should know about that for next time. We're starting to do them. Now, you're going to want to make sure that you become a Patreon member of The Katie Helper Show. And to do that, you just go to patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. And you're going to want to do that to hear the entire live show. We play for you here the show that was on the radio. But then the rest of the conversation, which wasn't broadcast on air, is something that you get access to when you become a Patreon subscriber. And you get to hear great Q&A and great questions from audience members like writer Freddie DeBoer and journalist and Chapo Trap House podcast producer Brendan James. Also, you get to get, at certain levels, a calendar, a mug. You know what else is a great thing to do? You can become a Patreon member. You can give someone a Patreon membership. Isn't that a great holiday gift? Kwanzaa, Christmas, Hanukkah, Combo, whatever, Solstice, Wicca thing. So that's something you could think about. Maybe giving someone a gift. Katie Helper Show membership. Patreon membership. Get lots of bonus episodes. Make sure you check out all our bonus episodes. Thanks. See you next week. But first, a quick message from our not-so-corporate sponsors. In a world where major telecommunication companies have outsourced jobs and helped the government spy on U.S. citizens, wouldn't it be nice to use your phone as a force for good and not evil? Well, you can, thanks to Credo Mobile, a progressive phone company. Every month they take a share of their revenue, more than $150,000, and donate it to incredible progressive organizations, and that adds up. They've already contributed over $81 million to organizations like the Brennan Center for Justice, Amnesty International, and Planned Parenthood. And Credo customers vote to determine which organizations get how much money. Not only does Credo fund progressive causes, but you get to use the phone of your choice with great service. Right now, Credo has a special deal for Katie Halper listeners. Go to credo.com slash Katie and get 50% off unlimited talk and text for two years. Plus, select smartphones are free. It'll be a smartphone. We're not talking flip phones. Just go to credo.com slash K-A-T-I-E. That's C-R-E-D-O dot com slash K-A-T-I-E, credo dot com slash Katie, or call 1-800-260-1254. That's 1-800-260-1254. And tell them Katie Helper sent ya. Don't forget that part. It's time your phone company represented your values. So go to credo dot com slash Katie today. Our guests, you say, who are our guests? Well, to my left is a very smart accomplished Karina Moreno. And um, Karina is a professor at LIU Brooklyn, and her research areas are immigration. And she hails from, I don't want to say it, because it'll sound pretentious if I say it with the Spanish accent, and it'll sound really um, garbagey if I don't say it. So what city in Mexico are you from? Monterrey. Okay. Um, our second guest, lovely gentleman, Kazembe Balagan, who is the, the former education outreach coordinator for the Brecht Forum yeah. and now is at um, the Rosa Luxemburg 
Can I just say foundation? Yeah, I just I just, I just follow German communists wherever they go. Yeah, he does. he has. In fact, there are a lot of restraining orders against him that uh, various German communists have put out. Um, and our final guest, who we're so excited, he came all the way from Washington D.C. for this, in addition to something else. He is a fearless, literally, we'll talk about how fearless he is, journalist with the Intercept, Zed Jelani. Come, come. Fearless and self-effacing. Does not want to come on stage. Come. Thank you. So I wanted to start with, if, if it's okay, Zed, can we start with you? Yeah, sure. All right. Get, come move. Okay, move in. Um, what are your, th I'm just going to ask a really general, because we go from the general, the universal, to the particular, right? It's like the opposite of the Shalom Aleichem. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? What he says about the particular, you know, yeah. We'll get into that poem later. Um, basically, it's like, how could I not care about my neighbor, but if I care, don't care about my neighbor, how can I not care about my countrymen? It's a very universalist, non-tribalist Jewish thing. Okay. As opposed to some other Jewish things, which are a bit more tribalist, like Israel. That's a nice segue, right? All right. So can you just talk to us about your, share your thoughts with us about identity politics and what you think they mean, and also how they functioned in the election and in politics in general? No, I think everyone, uh, you know, they view their identity as a, as a big part of, you know, who they are. I mean, that's sort of the root of the word, right? You know, when it comes to your identity, um, there are many w different ways people express that. You know, often in politics, I think we think about it in terms of uh, your racial or ethnic background uh, or even your religious background, also your gender background. But I mean, there's many other forms of identity, you know, where you grew up, geographic, uh, your personality. Uh, different other sorts of tribal affiliations. And I think these are something, you know, these are things that are really important to people, not only in terms of how they engage in like direct formal politics like elections, but also in sort of their social interactions, their social groupings. Um, but I think it, with respect to the question you're asking, you know, you're sort of talking about, you know, how did we engage uh, with this concept in the election? And I think a big part of it was, um, you know, the idea that if you had a certain skin color or if you're of a certain gender, uh, that you were automatically in a certain political camp based on those facts without necessarily talking too much about your ideas, your ideology, your values, uh, you know, all the sorts of other things that would make up your politics. And I think that form of what we call identity politics can often help obscure, uh, you know, what it is you're actually trying to get out of politics. You know, what are your beliefs? What are, what are the things that maybe you believe in that that cut across those identity lines. You know, uh, you know, I might be a certain skin color, but someone might be a completely different skin color, religion, uh, geographic background, but we might have the exact same ideology and beliefs in, in what we're trying to accomplish in the world, right? Um, so I think sort of blurring that line and sort of pretending as if people only through these most sort of superficial, you know, sort of labels, you know, those are the only sort of meaningful, you know, political distinctions between people. I think that's the harmful part of what identity politics often sort of devolves into. And so I think it's a lot of what we saw during, you know, Democratic primary or even, you know, going into the general election because honestly, I think when you spend a lot of time obsessing just about that, you really do remove the space to talk about your ideas or what you want, what your conception of power is, particularly around money. I mean, I think a lot of people are really obsessed with this form of politics. They don't want to talk about money at all or like, you know, what you can actually spend to create, you know, change in the world, either good or po good or bad, and how that separates people. Um, and I think that it's something you saw both with the Democratic candidate and the Republican candidate. I think they were all both deploying their own form of sort of identity tribalism. 
And a lot of, I think, what Americans want, whether it be you know, addressing the climate crisis, uh, changing American foreign policy, addressing skyrocketing income inequality, uh, you know, student debt issues like this, I think a lot of that was obscured by the fact that we were trying to pit people like, okay, men are on this side, women are on this side. You know, white people are on this side, everyone else is on the other side. You know, and that, I think, unfortunately, obscured a lot of those, those meaningful discussions we need to have. And Kazembe, do you want to respond to that, or you can respond to the question that I asked? Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to back up to Brother's point. I mean, I think that the, the way that I always go back to it is I always go back to the, to the issue of capital. Excuse oh, me? Yeah. Speak to the mic. Speak Thanks. to the microphone? More than he is, you mean? Like Already this? Hi. Hi, I'm Kazembe. Don't be afraid of your voice. Okay. I feel good. very empowered right yeah, now. I can say. Check in soon for the soul, guys. Check in soon. I can soar. I can do this. Yeah. Um, I believe you can fly. I'm about to. Um, first of all, again, good evening. Thank you so much for the wonderful invitation. Um, I guess the way I look at it is I always go back to um, what are the roots of like identity politics, and a lot of the roots of identity politics that the brother mentioned is a, is a basic form of objectification. Um, you know, we've gotten into this point of like marketing categories, um, you know, from, every, from everywhere, from like hair, deter, hair from detergent to, hair, to shampoo to soap. There's like a particular type of like marketing ploy for anybody, and we've all been putting these different ca camps. And like the brother mentioned, you know, is a, is a real big issue of money. And when I think about money, I think about capitalism, right? And like, how do we get to this point of identities? Um, the fact of the matter is, is that the history of this country, you know, w you know, was pretty much built upon like the legacy of slavery, you know, and, and deep racialization. Um, and, and, and with that, um, you know, before there was even um, a sense of that happening, you know, the majority of people in this country, working people were indentured servants. Um, when they saw that um, when the white people and black people were banding together and fighting against their landowners, then they came out with the, the idea of racism, right? And they, they created like the different categories. If you're black, you'll be born into slavery. If you're white, you have some sort of semi-free status. And since that time, that nightmare has really haunted us, you know, in the ways in which we interrelate, the way we relate to each other, and how we are to human, how we are human with each other. Um, so when I think about this idea of identity politics, I mean, I really go back to this, like this, this really crisis of of, of capitalism, or this 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 unfortunateness of, of of slavery and capitalism, and the need for us to really kind of overcome that in order for us to become um, more human, and like the brother said, really develop ideas around other types of solidarities that would uh, allow us to be a little bit more freer. Yeah, I, oh, but by the way, one thing that you both hit on was economics, and I remember when I worked in a public school my first year teaching, I uh, glibly in the teacher's lounge just threw out the amount of money I was making uh, as an incoming teacher, and uh, a income teacher... Thank you. It's snap. You like those puns, man? Uh-huh. I'm talking to you, front row. So I'm in, I'm in uh, the teacher's lounge, and I brought up exactly what I was making, which is common um, public knowledge to everybody in the DOE. And a teacher who was like four steps above me, she'd been in the system about 20, 20 years, she was, she was uh, acted as though I had cursed in the lounge. You know, it was like, uh, it, like I wasn't, it was an impropriety 
to talk about income. And I was thinking, we're all in a union. We're all like, I know, I can figure out exactly how much money you're making. Why would you think that it's not polite to talk about this? And uh, I just see that if we all look at exactly how much we're being screwed by how little we're making, uh, that's an uh, area that we could come together around and talk to management about raises. Come together about collective screwing. Yeah, I like it. Totally, we could talk about that too. <laughs> like on the other hand. I'm sex positive. By the way, um, can are there um, any extra seats? Oh. My my dad is here. By the way, hey. hi dad. Thanks uh, for coming. Oh, there's a seat there. Yeah, right. He looks. He used to get that he he looks like Einstein, but now in the post-Bernie world, he's told he looks like Bernie. So, um, and, uh, my, mom, my mom is not told she looks like Hillary, though. Because that, if, if so, they get divorced. There's a seat there or no? Okay, seat there. A seat there. We got a seat there. Chapo, Chapo, Trap House. Those six together. Chapo so they're not. So they're not going to divide up. Guys, if you, I don't hear what you said. Okay, no, it's not just you guys. I mean, I want other people to. Uh, sit too, but I think we're gonna here. There's a chair over there. Do we have another chair? We have a chair over there. Another guys, be good leftists. Be vocal. Give voice to voiceless. Give seats to the seatless. Okay, two over here. That goes out to everyone. You don't have to be part of a podcast. Guys, come in. Come in. You're giving me agita. Um. All right. See, see seats over here. You see, you guys. When we organize, this is like a rejection of identity politics. Anyone can sit next to me and you. Uh, we've still got more. All right, cool. All right, what are your thoughts on this fabulous subject of identity politics? Okay, um, identity, po identity politics. Uh, I think we've seen it, you know, thrown around in the media over and over again um, throughout the election, especially in the aftermath of the election. Um, I'm a bit concerned with how it's been used by, by liberals. Um, we don't use identity politics in an intersectional way. Um, we've sort of turned it into this very simplified, watered-down version. Um, of course, representation is important. Um, I think everyone would, would agree on that. But I think identity politics has become this sort of distraction. Um, we've sort of, in the aftermath of the election, with Donald Trump being elected, uh, we've sort of uh, jumped into this race of making this list of victims and trying to be at the top of the list. I mean, uh, I'm from Mexico. I'm an immigrant. I was originally undocumented when I first arrived in, in the, the United States. So it was very easy to fall into this sort of emotional response, a very like reactionary response. Um, but I think identity politics has been used in a very incomplete sort of way because it's lacked any sort of real class analysis. Um, it's it's uh, sort of taken us away from talking about power, from talking about different structural systems in place um, that produce inequality and perpetuate bias. And uh, I think it's been sort of a ruse. And we can sort of see that it's been a little bit of a ruse when we look at the way the liberals have uh, tried to smear Keith Ellison, who is African-American and who is Muslim. Um, so. Yeah, it's representation, all for it, but we haven't used it in a very nuanced, intersectional way. Thank you. And intersectional, for in case people don't know, I'm embarrassed because there are people in the room who could give. Do you want to define? I don't want to put you on the spot. Oh, talking to the mic, yeah. Um, intersectional is a term that Kimberly Crenshaw developed. Um, 
And it's basically the idea, it's a feminist idea, and it's the idea that, you know, like race and class uh, and gender and sexuality intersect. And it's a kind of a pushback against the, the presumptuously white, middle-class, bougie nature of much of the feminist movement. Is that fair? All right, is that problematic? Did I, okay. Um, by the way, every time someone on the stage says problematic, you have to put a dollar into, a, into the cup. Okay, this is a problematic free zone. I mean, what does it mean, honestly? Okay, so uh, let's be specific. Okay, so um, I, I want to know how you guys kind of personally interacted with identity politics and if you felt, because um, I feel like a lot of the election was kind of a reduction of all issues to identities, like you were refer referring to, Zed. Um, and this idea that there were these white allies, woke ally, woke white allies, WWA, um, who were like, in, an, in their pseudo-intersectionality, were actually flattening all people of color into one thing, which was a clearly pro-Hillary Clinton camp, right? And that it was kind of it was inherently racist and privileged of people to support Bernie Sanders and to support Jill Stein. Um, so I want to know if you if you encountered that at all. I mean, yeah, I, and this is something that you know whoever did the hacks, you know, whether it was Russians or whoever, um, actually gave us a little bit of an insight into how the Hillary Clinton campaign thought about this. Is that they had an intentional strategy, you know, starting from the beginning of the primary campaign. Uh, basically, to try to frame Bernie Sanders as a candidate, you know, of white folks. You know, Tom Perez, who's just announcing his bid for DNC chair, actually advised them to tell, uh, to frame Bernie's young support as young, not as young people, which he thought was a big problem. That he was getting so many young uh, African Americans, young Latino Americans, Arab Americans. Uh, he wanted them to reframe them as young white people. You know, because he, I mean, and I think that's. You know, when you talk about identity politics, you know, I, I don't come, you know, I was born and raised in America, my folks are immigrants, right? So often when I, when we talk about identity politics, I think about it not as like your identity and making sure everyone's represented, because that's just common sense. I mean, anyone with decency wants to make sure everyone is uh, represented and wants to make sure no one's being discriminated against. But I think about it in terms of sectarianism, right? Like, to me, what Tom Perez was trying to do was, was to try to advise the Clinton folks to say, hey, if you're a young white person in Brooklyn, you don't have the same interests at all as like a young Latino person in Los Angeles, right? And that those two groups should be fighting each other. And certainly, they have different concerns. Like if you're a young Latino person, you're, you know, your family may be undocumented, that's a concern that maybe a young white person maybe wouldn't have uh, in most cases. But that doesn't mean you don't have a lot of shared concerns. And it doesn't mean that you should be fighting each other. It means that you should be working to address each other's concerns and creating a better outcome for both sides. But it seems to me like they wanted to embrace the sectarian nature of all this just for their own political benefit. And that's something that, you know, you can go back in the history of where I'm from. I'm from the, my family is from the subcontinent, right? You know, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. And a big part of the reason like Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs have had such a hard time getting along is because when the British colonized those places, they made sure to use one group against another, right? So like they would have Muslims police Hindus and Sikhs police, uh, police Muslims and things like that so that these groups would be fighting each other rather than standing up against them. And it's not that, you know, um, it's not that there aren't like racial deprivations that were benefited one group and, you know, disbenefited another group. And that's something you can see in the history of the subcontinent as well. Like 
when you talk to someone who's an older Pakistani and they start recounting like Indian atrocities against Pakistan, like it's all true. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that you should hate all Indians, and it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be willing to work with them and like de-escalate nuclear tensions and like <laughs> you know things like that. Like it's hot it, take. Yeah, right, right, exactly. So you know, I it's the same for me. It's the same framework in the United States. Like when the Clinton people were, they were playing with fire. I think by trying to cast like, okay, if you're white, you don't like aren't legitimate, or like you don't you, you shouldn't be allowed to be in politics. So you should just like talk about how your race is bad all the time, like. That's a really stupid way to address civil rights inequality. Like it just it turns a lot of people off, and it just pits people against each other rather than saying, "Hey, yeah, white people did do a lot of bad things to other groups, and we should try to fix those problems." But it doesn't mean like there's something wrong with you because you're white. It doesn't mean that these groups should be fighting each other. Instead, they should be working towards their mutual interests. And I think, you know, that's something I think you know the Trump campaign did to some extent as well um, with the way that they are running their campaign. And I think the Clinton and Trump. At the end of the day, they ended up character assassinating each other and character assassinating each other's bases, right? With Clinton, you know, using the deplorable type remarks, you know, Trump did all sorts of things. And I think at the end of the day, the ideas were lost there. You know, their conception of justice, their conception of what, you know, a good United States and what a fair and just world would look like was completely lost because tribes were just fighting each other. And to me, that does feel a lot like what happened in the Indian subcontinent. I mean, nowhere near as bad as, you know, being colonized or anything. You know, Trump and Clinton weren't colonizing us, but they were trying to pit people against each other on very core, you know, basic skin level type um, differences, which I don't think should be the area we should be fighting about. We should be fighting about, you know, what does a, a clean energy economy look like? Well, how do we address income inequality? How do we stop all these racial injustices without, you know, trying to pin it just on one racial group or, you know, turn people off because of their skin color, but rather say that, hey, these inequalities exist, let's get rid of them, let's treat everyone equally. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think they were up to the task because I think both Trump and Clinton were doing this in a self-interested manner. But I think all of us who are in this movement uh, to try to make a more just and fair and free America, I think it's in our interest to do something like that. And I think we can because I think most Americans do want to see something like that. We just didn't have very good messengers for it this time around. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought, do you want to respond to that? Or Karina, do you want to? Um, I think it was really interesting that Latinos didn't turn out as expected for Clinton. And uh, this is with Donald Trump announcing his presidency and calling us criminals and rapists. Um, some, of, some, of, some are nice, I assume. Some of them are good, good people, people yeah. I think. Uh, so, so, I mean, and, and it didn't come, I mean, yes, I was stunned uh, to, to see, you know, that he was elected. But once I... I started looking at the research that I've done throughout the states of Arizona and New York. It, it wasn't that much of a surprise when there is such disillusionment within the within Latinos with the Democratic Party. Um, I think the Clinton campaign was was just sort of counting on. Okay, so Trump did all the work for us. They called you know just the the language alone um, that will get them to to vote for us. But that wasn't enough. Uh, to, to get them to show up. And I know that it's becoming more and more of an issue that uh, the deportations, they've been, uh, you know, people in Arizona say, well, it was a Democratic president and we've had record number of deportations. Deporter in chief. Um, yes, so so what's the incentive? What is the motivation for us if, if Latino, you know, politicians come and pander to us uh, during election time and then that's it. <laughs> There's no, nothing done in, in terms of immigration reform and so forth. And can you talk about, you wrote a piece at Jacobin that talks about, um, you wrote a piece at Jacobin, they really want me to plug Jacobin. No, you wrote a piece at Jacobin that talks about um, this kind of um, potentially or seemingly 
seeming victory that wasn't quite as uh, much of a win as one would like to think. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Right, so we had the Department of uh, Justice who announced that it was sort of weaning off the use of private prisons and um, I, I sort of wrote that it was a sort of symbolic half win, if, if I can say. Um, one second. It, wa it wasn't just symbolic. It made me feel really good for one day on Facebook well, and a lot of people I mean, sharing the article. Okay, so basically this sort of weaning off private prisons would affect about 1% of the people that are, that are in, in, in these prisons. <laughs> so yeah, so it, it, I, I was writing about, uh, the piece in Jacobin write, uh, talks about how this is just a very clear shift in marketplaces from um, the war on drugs to the war on terror. And now we are uh, detaining immigrants and detaining them indefinitely. I mean, we can detain them indefinitely. Uh, we have Trump talking about, we have mandatory sentencing under Obama, but we have Trump talking about, uh, you know, promising that he's gonna sort of set mandatory sentencing for um, two years if you uh, are caught crossing the border, five years if you're caught more than two times. Um, so anyways, just a shift in marketplaces, and so this sort of announcement of we are going to wean off the use of private prisons isn't very much, it's not some uh, great victory because it doesn't include Homeland Security, which is where all the money is coming from, and uh, the private contractors, CCA, which is now called Core Civic, and uh, the GEO Group are making obscene amounts of profits off of detaining immigrants. You can go to their websites too. <laughs> A lot of smiley faces. They're sponsoring this event, actually. Um, but so what was really fascinating, I think, about your piece is that it spoke to kind of Barack Obama's real fluency in social justice. And again, he was a community organizer, right? And he's very good at presenting himself and positioning himself as a champion of um, the, let's say, under underrepresented the disenfranchised, in a way that, for instance, Hillary Clinton was not. So I will forever be scarred by the image of Hillary Clinton um, holding hands with Mary J. Blige as Mary J. Blige sang a very moving song, uh, 41 Shots. That's a, it's, what is, it's called something else. Yeah. It's a Bruce Springsteen song about Amadou Diallo, who, who literally had his wallet. He was showing his ID, and the NYPD shot him 41 times. They, they, they fired their guns 41 times. And so Mary J. Blige and Hillary Clinton had a face-to-face, -face and um, it was, I actually, it made me like Hillary more than I've ever liked her before because I was so, I felt so, I felt empathy for her that I'd never felt before because it was so painful to watch. Um, it really humanized her for me. But, um, but um, that's not some, like, that is not a problem Obama had. Obama has the opposite thing, right? Where, I mean, it's, he's so smooth and, like, nerdy smooth, too. So, like, down-to-earth smooth, and he has so much swagger. And, you know, he went on, like, sorry if you listen to my show, I talk about this, like, once every other week, probably. But just, this is such a metaphor. He went on the Jimmy Fallon show and slow-jammed the TPP. Like, that is just so Obama. Um, and... I think it really speaks to, you know, the other day, obviously, you guys, everyone probably knows, but a couple weeks ago now, Bernie Sanders got into trouble because he was asked by a, a woman who wanted to become the second Latina senator what tips he had, and he gave this, this spiel where he said, emphatically, he said about a couple times during this, his little spiel, he was like, um, of course, like, you know, we need more, like, 
I think there are about 20 female senators. I think we need 50. Um, obviously, it's good. We all know. You know, there's no question that's accepted, obviously. But we have to do more. We have to move beyond identity politics. It's not good enough. Like, it doesn't tell me a whole hell of a lot if you're, if you're Latino and you're not fighting the oligarchy or whatever. I think he still thinks it's spelled with an A, by the way. And it's like from Al-Andalus, Spain or something, an Arabic word. Um, but he, of course, was slammed by the media. So all of a sudden, now when he says to go beyond identity politics, it is very clear that he's saying identity politics are necessary but insufficient, right? Like, we need more representation, but that's the bare minimum, and we need to go further. Um, but that's not, of course, how it was represented. It was represented as uh, the turn of phrase was that Bernie Sanders was telling supporters to ditch identity politics, which was so dishonest. Get over it. Get over identity. <laughs> Enough already with this Michigas. I always imagine him like dropping <laughs> way more Yiddish than he actually does, and then like filtering out the Yiddish when he does it, sanitizing it, getting rid of the schmaltz, um, deschmaltzifying. Um, but he, his thing was not like what he was saying is a pretty basic premise, right? Like we want more people of color, but. People of color, like white people, have politics and policies. Like, it's really offensive that he said that, right? We should just look at people of color as ornaments and trinkets. And what I found interesting is the fact that people needed to jump on this and that what he was saying was, like, not half of the story. And I think we know the other half. And I think, I think we know the other half of the story, which is that it's not just that identity politics are insufficient, but they've been taken and weaponized, right, as a tool to push a... Wow, I'm, I'm so my mother's daughter. To push a neoliberal agenda, right, that is actually at odds with the, uh, with the people and the groups, the underrepresented groups who identity politics people are pretending to care about, right? So it's not just that it's not enough. It's actually often used quite cynically. And I think we saw this, you know, everyone who was, on, who was mad at Sanders about his comments were fine with Hillary Clinton's famous, you know, would breaking up the banks end racism? No, as if that was ever put forward as a plan. And that is like, could not have been, you were talking Zed about the pitting, pitting together, pitting populations against each other, groups against each other. I mean, that couldn't have been a better example of it, right? And it was so disingenuous on so many levels. And that's why I will take seriously someone who, who problematizes Bernie Sanders' identity politics if they said anything about Hillary's thing on the banks. That, you know how many people that applies to? Like maybe were you want maybe you like I don't know any person a single person who I've seen writing articles or tweeting about this who talked about what Hillary did so I just want to tell you guys out there your shams we're on to you I'm like Al Sharpton what he's like nice try but we got you um, but yeah it's so transparent to me so anyway do you have any I see you I mean I, I mean I think that one of the important things is that we have to get to a point when I want to piggyback on the brother's point and also sister's point. First of all, the sister's point, I think when we talk about intersectionality and immigration, like immigration is a black issue. New York City has two million black people in the city. We have the largest number of black people in the United States, 40% of whom come from the Caribbean, Latin America, and Africa. So like, so immigration is a black issue. Um, and so when we're talking about these issues, it's important to look at these, like you mentioned, these intersections, and important to building solidarity. The second thing I think is really important is that culture matters and that, you know, but culture without economics is kind of weak. So we have to think about the politics of redistribution along with the politics of recognition. 
And a part of that is being able to talk about race. And I think in the early stages of Bernie Sanders' campaign, he was very slow in talking about race. Him being like, you know, older, white, from Vermont, not necessarily having the sophistication around, you know, particular racial coding and things of that nature. But I think he picked up. He was able to like pick up and really kind of to talk about it. But certainly, in a lot of ways, the Republicans are talking about race, but they're not, they're doing it in a very different way. When they're talking about government workers, they're talking about black people, right. you know? And when you're talking about this transition team that Trump's putting together and the, and, and the new cabinet, it's not just he's just hiring the new cabinet. He's hiring 4,124 employees of the federal government. Where are those people going to live? In the black center of Washington, D.C., right? And so, so what you have, in, in the, and if you want to put it in historical terms, you have the most widening out of D.C. in terms of white cabinet members since Woodrow Wilson. Mm. And we remember Woodrow Wilson filmed the first motion picture, which was the first talkie, which was what? Birth of a Nation, right? So, this, so we're going back. You know, you talk about doing a throwback. We're going back 100 years. The second thing I want to talk about is the fact that identity politics is the flip side of post-racial. You know, and I think that Obama was very comfortable in terms of the post-racial milieu. And what, ha but what happened? Who destroyed the post-racial milieu? It was the Black Lives Matter movement. It was the Black Lives Matter movement that brought the idea of black, black identity and black needs back into the political agenda. And I think that one, one of the things that we have to really have to deal with in terms of this question of politics of redistribution and politics of recognition is being able to marry the two, being able to say that black worker issues are issues that concern white people, right? So healthcare in Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is a very black issue, is a very white issue. The fact of the matter is that the, 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 the legacy of slavery, the fact that we're talking about Trump being elected, comes from the Electoral College, was a reflection of slavery. So until we have that type of healing, in terms of our language around race, it's gonna be very difficult for us to push the, for us as a left to kind of push it even an inch. So, so what I'm what I'm really arguing is for us, like you know, let's not be afraid of the dark, right? Let's be able to talk about race in a very deep way that allows for people to see the differences, but also move forward and find some commonality and not just blanket it out. Yeah, I think that's a. That's the challenge, right, or the, the, the balancing act, which is the, the commonalities without denying the significance, and you basically were speaking to this, right, but it's the, there are commonalities and there are ways that the divide and conquer thing is used both here and in, you know, with India, Pakistan, right, um, but how do we kind of recognize that it's not the same thing to be a white working class person as it is to be a black working class person without kind of obfuscating the ways that they do share certain things in common. And I feel like that's something the DNC has been very successful at exploiting, which is really driving, you know, trying to only emphasize the, the, the lack of similarity. So um, instead of the overlap. So a question related to that is like, what, what, are, what, what is to be done? To quote, you know, really rad thinker. Um, Lenin not from the Beatles. Um, what is to be done though, like what do you think the takeaways are from this in terms of organizing and moving forward and um, how do we kind of apply this or how do, we, how do we combat what we've encountered? I think something to learn from this, uh, from the, you know, Trump winning this election is that we need a movement of the people, not of elites. I think mm -hmm. this was a real, 
you know, uh, deficiency with the Clinton campaign that people perceived her as an elite. And so, you know, uh, out of touch, there's a crisis of legitimacy and there's a crisis of the establishment. And so we need a, a movement, a collective movement of people. And that needs to cut across color, ethnicity, gender. Yeah, that's, that's the, what I can think of. I feel like there, there are two things that, two narratives that I kind of can't believe are, are around right now. Um, one is that um, it's not, that economic anxiety is a punchline. Like, I love reading these liberals who are so funny and they like punch each other in the arm uh, with their inside jokes where, you know, ha ha ha, that racist, it's all due to economic anxiety. I mean, in a way it's refreshing. We've moved to a place where people just openly make fun of of the idea of like class-based suffering, right? Like they just get, they just jump on, I mean, it's a gift. It's a kind of the gift that keeps on giving, like people blaming the um, fight for 15 for not doing more to get Hillary Clinton elected. And the takeaway, I think we can all agree that the takeaway from that is the fight between a $12 minimum wage and a $15 minimum wage was totally masturbatory and self-indulgent, a waste of time, and brought us Trump, right? I mean, this is, I'm not exaggerating, except they didn't use the word masturbatory, but it is so scary to me how inverted the version of the truth is that is being promoted right now. It's not that, like, part of the reason that Trump won is because we had a candidate, a nominee, who needed to be pushed on the minimum wage, right? So, so literally people are so, these people are just fundamentalist ideologues, right? And they're committed to the idea and the narrative that Bernie Sanders pushed Hillary Clinton too far to the right with his phallic wagging fingers um, and um, like probed her or whatever and violated her. It was unconsensual finger wagging. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I, I can't deal with it except occasionally I like, you know, try to make fun of it, but it's actually incredibly disturbing, like, to watch the takeaways that literally keep going. And I mean, Sanders the other day was in Wisconsin and speaking on a panel, and there were these Midwesterners, and one of them was not very woke, and she said um, that she blamed the illegals, and um, Bernie Sanders was like, had a heart-to-heart -heart with her where he didn't condescend to her, but he, he didn't embrace her position either. And he kind of had, this, like, there was, this, like, a, an explainer about, like, well, what do you, do you think this is unfair? And basically, by the end of it, she was like, no, you're right. Like, he was basically saying, like, don't blame immigrants, blame Wall Street. Blame the billionaires and the banks. <laughs> um, and that was something that people were angry about because that's catering to racism and racists. Mm. Like, I don't... I don't know how to respond to that claim, except to say that, like, if you think that's true, then you need, like, what are you proposing? You're ba if, if we need to not talk to these people, that's because you either are willing to wait until, like, whites are a demographic minority, which is a little cruel to people who are going to be suffering under Trump, right? To just be like, whatever, we'll take it for a couple, they'll take it for a couple of years. It's that, or you don't, or you like want armed revolution. Um, and I don't think like the Slate journalists who are putting this position forward are about to put pick up AK-47s. Um, there's some something suggests that to me. Um, so yeah, any thoughts about how to how to respond to that? And also, who who's who has to do this work? Who does the work? 
I can't believe I just said those words. But in terms of reaching out to people who are being written off as bigots, who who does this? Like pol- I think labor, the labor movement, and community organizers, and I think politicians. But Russian trolls. Russian trolls, yeah. <laughs> Little Matryoshki dolls. Um, yeah. Any insights into that kind of? I mean, what I what I find interesting and. In- I don't know everyone's politics here. I guess y'all are probably leftists or left, yeah. pretty left-leading, right? Like, I feel Between like pretty much my entire life, I've been told by like liberals or centrists or whatever you want to call them that like my politics is too purist <clears throat> and like I'm too extreme and I can't win people over. And what I've heard since the election is the same people saying, "Actually, I'm a little too purist. I'm a little, you know, I don't want to talk to these people. I don't want to win them over. I don't care. I'd rather be self-righteous." Oh, you know. totally. Yes. You know, like I get, there's like I don't know who Anil Dash is. You guys know that guy on Twitter? I don't. I don't. I don't actually know who this person is. I just know he's on Twitter, and he had a tweet or something like, "I will not break bread with racists," and I'm like, "Well." Or, I, or no, I won't have tea with racists. And I just, I kind of made fun of him a little bit. And he's like, why aren't you having tea with racists right now then, Zed? And, then, you know, it was 1 a.m., so I wasn't going to go find one and <laughs> break out the tea. You're like, get back to me at 4 p.m. on Sunday. High tea with the racists. Um, but it, it's a weird position because, to me, you're kind of arguing and boasting that you're unable to influence people. And that's like the opposite of politics, right? Politics is about influencing people and organizing people, right? And, you know, if you go back, you're like, look, just look at like, like a Gallup poll. Like Gallup always pulled people about interracial marriage. Something that always shocks me is that in the year 1994, the majority of Americans did not approve of white-black marriage. Like in 1994, oh right? Like I was in elementary school, you know, Cosby Show was on, whatever, right? People not didn't approve of interracial marriage. I'm, I'm assuming that didn't change because like Anil Dash went around and said, you're a racist, I will not have tea with you. You know, like that's not... That's not how minds were changed. Minds were changed because a lot of people were willing to engage in very tough conversations with folks who disagreed, push themselves into their spaces, make people a little uncomfortable, but go through that long, sometimes a really long process to move a lot of people and to change these issues. And like, that's how change has always happened. Of course, there are limits to that and there are barriers to that. You know, there's some folks who just like, you're wasting your time if you're engaging with them. I mean, I'm probably not going to convince David Duke that like, you know, Jews are cool or something like that. But like, I could though, maybe. But you know, if, um, but somebody who thinks that, hey, Syrian refugees are terrorists, but they just literally have never met an Arab American, like, hey, yeah, I could invite them to like a mosque or something or like, you know, those things are possible and people do move over time. I mean, that's uh, probably everyone in this room has changed their mind about something in their life, right? Um, and a big part of that is understanding that you're dealing with human beings. You're not dealing with like, you know, cartoon character villains, um, so on and so forth. And you also have to understand the difference between trying to move like citizens who's often, you know, their, their point of view is decided by um, sort of just their values or their beliefs and politicians. Like politicians often, what they're doing is decided by interests. So I think often attacking them makes a lot more sense because you're changing their sort of interest calculation, right? But if you're talking about like your fellow citizens, like, you know, yeah, grabbing coffee with a friend and talking over an issue with them is not the worst thing in the world to do. It probably wouldn't work against Donald Trump. You probably do have to fight Donald Trump and attack Donald Trump to change his interests. But with a friend or just a normal person, like often that's one of the most meaningful things that you can start doing. And I think the fact that Bernie, I, I encourage everyone to go watch that Bernie Town Hall in Wisconsin, oh because he literally did move some people on that stage who didn't realize that the Republicans like want to destroy the social uh, insurance program in this country. Can okay. I ask one thing? Yeah, sure. please. You know, I'm going to ask two things. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I might make it three. Um, I'm sitting here and I'm listening to all this. And, you know, as she says, who's paying for this? 
right? Who's paying for the Medicaid? Who's paying for the Social Security? Who's paying for the Medicare? Whom? Thank you. We are. Now, have any of you seen down on streets that it seems as though we have become the silent minority and not the majority? What do you mean by that? How much have we been listened to, really? But who's the, who's the we when you say this? You mean us people? Who people? The people, people who need the Medicare, the people who need the Social Security, who needs the help with the education. Okay, but now here's good good point. Let's let's see if we can go forward on this. I'm assuming that you believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that we should not cut Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid. Is that correct or not? Yeah. Okay. I believe it shouldn't be cut. Okay. Do you know who is now working very hard to try to do that? Republicans in Congress have a plan under the guise of saving Medicare and saving Social Security, making devastating cuts. That's what Republicans are now trying to do. The other point that you made, which is a very, I think you made it, or you, both of you have made it actually, is who's going to pay for this stuff? And that is a very fair point. What all of us should know is that over the last 25 years, there has been a massive transfer of wealth in this country from you to the top one-tenth of one percent. In other words, the middle class has shrunk and trillions of dollars have gone to the top one-tenth of one percent. Do you think it's inappropriate to ask those people to start paying their fair share of taxes so we can adequately fund Medicaid and making public colleges and universities tuition free? Is that an unfair thing to ask? I think it's an unfair thing to ask. They, the representers, they got rich off us. That's right. So it's time they put back. Okay. All right. That's all I'm saying. She's like, yeah, actually, that is messed up. And actually, I would help you fight against that. And I, you know, I, it, it was a real, it was a real sort of, um, it was a real sort of realization for her. And a big part of it was, I think that. A lot of people weren't willing to come to her and even have that conversation. They heard, oh, you voted for Trump? Oh, you're, you must be the worst person in the world. You know, you must, like, you know, worship Hitler at night or something like that. Like, it, when that often, that's just not the case at all. And I grew up, you know, in, in red state Georgia. So, and sorry, I, would, I just need to, yeah. because we're signing out. I want, I want to thank everyone listening on the radio. You guys are, we're sticking around. But I have to just say thank you for listening to the Katie Halper Show. The Katie Halper Show is on every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI. That's 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. Yeah, okay, cool. And everyone else is here. You guys are blessed because we're going to keep going. <laughs> but we're still here live, people here. Oh, yeah, guys, not only we have, we're going to do, a, we're gonna do more comments, then we're going to do a Q&A, and then we do karaoke. So listeners, if you're out there and you're like, what can I do on a Wednesday night? And I don't want to hang out with my liberal friends and, like, wa drink rosé or what else do they do? Like, uh, watch, I don't know, like, What's the hospital drama that's not on anymore? What's the equivalent? Grey's Anatomy. But like, whatever's on now. You can come here and do karaoke. And we're gonna do wokey-okey. That's woke karaoke. And I don't know what that means, but I want to say it. Okay, and laugh into the mic, because then this is a cheap problem. This is like, I don't know why people think that, like, I want them on my radio show to hide their laughter. Anyway, um, uh, Zed uh, and then Gabe, yes. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper show and subscribe. Remember to please rate and review us on iTunes and spread the word about the show. Thanks, guys. <laughs>